Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. But the difficult for me isn't so much, you know, animal rights versus environment. It's getting the message to cardiologists. That's the thing that I feel like I I really am drawn to do and that I need to do. I've had the unfortunate experience of having multiple friends my age and younger who are cardiologists, not recognizing that the leading cause of death of cardiologists is still heart disease and not understanding that they can take control of it and that when they fix it for themselves and their families, they're also going to fix their patients. And so getting cardiology in general to understand the principles of nutrition because we're not taught about nutrition in school. And there are very few research projects that have captured the imagination of the guideline committees. And part of the problem there is that we need more trials, but we need to make them plant-based. That's cardiologist Dr. Kim Williams. And this is episode 90 of the Plant Proof Podcast. friends, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Awesome to be back here again for another episode with all of you. For new listeners, welcome. Thank you for joining us. My name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show, physiotherapist, nutritionist, currently writing a book on nutrition with Penguin, which with a bit of luck will be published sometime later this year. And I'm glad that you have managed to find the show and I really hope you get something out of today's episode that helps you become more mindful and conscious of the way that you live. That's what each episode is about, a non-judgmental, non-preachy space to talk about diet. And let's face it, it's hard to do that these days, to talk about being mindful of our decisions and really an opportunity to sit down with inspiring people from all over the world, doctors, nutritionists, dietitians, athletes, people who have overcome chronic disease and generally folks that are working hard to create positive change in the world. Today I have a super important episode for you on cardiovascular disease with Dr. Kim Williams, cardiologist, a man that I have so much respect for and really I've wanted to have this conversation for a long time. It's been a long time coming uh, and it was great that we crossed paths while in Melbourne, both being down to, to watch the Australian Open. So I'm glad that this exchange took place and, and I think that there are some really important take-home messages. Cardiovascular disease which really needs no introduction. It includes heart attack, stroke, heart failure, etc. It's the leading cause of death, not only in Australia, not only in the United States, but across the entire world. In the United States alone, the estimated cost of this disease is over $200 billion annually in healthcare services, medications, and lost productivity. And the crazy thing is that although cardiovascular disease seems so normal and tends to run in families, this is largely because families adopt the same lifestyle habits. Fortunately, 
we have science that shows us how to eat to prevent and, and even reverse cardiovascular disease. And that's exactly what this episode is all about, along with discussions about American healthcare, government guidelines, industry influence, and much more. Born and trained in Chicago, Dr. Williams was a professional level tennis player, something that we talk about here, and a coach. Before choosing rather to pursue a career in cardiology. Since 2013, he has headed up the cardiology department of Rush University Medical Center, where many of his colleagues have also found their way to adopting a plant-based diet. Dr. Williams has served on numerous committees and boards at the United States national level, including but certainly not limited to the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association. Among other presidencies throughout his very distinguished career, Dr. Williams was the 2016 president of the American College of Cardiology. Kim is the inaugural editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention, the IJDRP. This new journal has been created to document the science of nutrition and lifestyle to prevent, suspend, and reverse disease. Kim is on the International Advisory Council for Doctors for Nutrition, part of the reason that he's actually in Australia uh, and is speaking at the Adelaide Symposium that is put on by Doctors for Nutrition February 2nd in Adelaide this year. It was an honour to sit down with him. He's an absolute wealth of knowledge and is truly dedicated to bettering human health. So with that said, it's time to hear from Dr. Kim Williams. I hope you enjoy this exchange and I'll see you on the other side. Dr. Kim Williams, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Been a, a long time follower of your work, so it's it's lovely to firstly have you here in Melbourne and I feel very grateful to, to have this opportunity to sit down with you and talk to you about cardiovascular disease, which is, if I'm correct, the, the leading cause of death worldwide. That is actually true. And it's, uh, I'm sad to sit here and report uh, that it's uh, really been changing. Low and middle income countries uh, no longer have infectious diseases and communicable diseases as the leading cause of death. It's now heart disease. Fortunately, most of the high income countries, heart disease has fallen to number two. United States of America is not the case. And cancer deaths are actually falling while heart disease rates are actually rising. And that has a lot to do with our lifestyle. And that's uh, why we work so hard to try to get people to change what they do. So for, for a while there, there was a, a few decades in America, right, where heart disease incidents actually dropped, right, with with, innovate, with new surgeries and medications and, and whatnot. Is that right? And now it's going back up? That's exactly right. So if we look at all of the things and, you know, there's a nice uh, New England Journal of Medicine article that sort of codifies where the timeline over four decades, about a 70% decrease in cardiovascular mortality. We really thought we were, you know, we would follow that trajectory and we would be number two. And I was actually talking about that when I was president of the American College of Cardiology, holding out two fingers saying, you know, we want to be number two. 
didn't happen. Unfortunately, our CDC released data that year in 2015, and that 2015 data showed that there had been a tick upward, and that upward tick has continued to, to increase. They say it's because of obesity and diabetes generating heart disease, and that is our lifestyle. It really is. The, the obesity epidemic is worsening, and we've really got to get, a, get the message out about nutrition, and it really shouldn't be something that adds to someone's set of illnesses. It should be adding to their life. And that is a message that uh, we need to keep going with. To sort of, I guess, paint the, the, the picture as to how prevalent it is, how many Americans are affected by cardiovascular disease? And is it mainly heart attacks or, or strokes and, and sudden cardiac death? What, what are the actual stats? So it's interesting that we've, we're still having a about 600,000 people die every year. We're still having, you know, that half a million of heart attacks that happen where, you, where you've completely occluded the artery and another half a million that where you have got done a partial occlusion, sort of, you know, they call them STEMIs and non-STEMIs. But it's more than that. It is stroke, as you mentioned. It's peripheral artery disease. It's erectile dysfunction. There's so many different manifestations of plaque going into arteries. And so at the individual level, we really have to take that approach. I started this uh, really just about a year ago. I think I got back from Australia and it hit me um, that this is something I could actually discuss with patients in, a, in, in real time. So every time I see a patient who's got one of those blocked arteries somewhere, I actually say to them, I'm going to have this, may sound strange, may sound like the silliest conversation you, you've ever had, but just humor me and just, just let's just go through some really dumb questions. And I start off with, tell me why you're here. I said, well, I had a heart attack. And what's your understanding of what happened to make that heart attack? Well, I had a blocked artery. That's right. And so when the artery got blocked, what was it blocked with? Um, plaque? That's right. And what's plaque made out of? Cholesterol and fat? That's right. And where did, where did that cholesterol and fat come from? 100% of my patients can answer that question. I ate it, they say. And I said, okay, so we're going to change that. Sure, you got a stent. And sure, we're going to put you on medication appropriate for the stent and medications to protect the heart you know, and lower the cholesterol. But we're not going to eat any more of the cholesterol and fat that put you here in the first place. And you okay? And they always say, fine. So until I discovered that a year ago, um, that if I tell the patient to change their diet, they start thinking about all the things they're going to miss. But whereas if they actually walk themselves through the process that got them to see me, they seem to accept it just fine. It's more meaningful. Yeah, yeah. They connected the dots, not me just telling them something. It's a very, very good way of putting it. And I, I want to, in this episode, delve into, I guess, some of the mechanisms yes. behind the foods that we eat, certain nutrients and how they contribute to to the plaque buildup or ather atherosclerosis. Right. Before we do that, you mentioned Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Now, you're, you're a regular visitor here, right? This is my 19th Australian Open. Yes, Gosh. indeed. <laughs> so you're here, you're here for the entire Australian Open? Always, yeah. Always. That's right. Uh, tennis is a big part of your life. Um, and it's, it looks like it's going to be growing. I had a, <laughs> uh, a hip replacement that, uh, a few weeks ago that uh, allowed me to get back on the court and get more, more mobility. So anybody out there who's interested, do the anterior approach if you're an athlete. 
And uh, I'm back playing and I'm actually, it, it seems like the past 11 years. So the injury was 1997, so 23 years ago. And this is the 11th time I've played on these particular courts uh, in Melbourne and East Melbourne. And the court seems smaller than it used to for the to be for the. <laughs> I wonder why that is. I can actually move on the court now. So uh, so yeah, and uh, hoping to uh, uh, continue to play. Uh, why am I so insistent on it? It's about three publications, mostly from Great Britain, and they all were very congruent, saying it's about a fifty-seven percent decrease in cardiovascular mortality if you're a tennis player. Gosh, yeah. So from the the cardiovascular fitness side of things, I you know. When I look at that data, I'm sure there's some confounding yeah. variables, which probably plays into a lot of our discussions today. Certainly, yeah. But for that one, tennis players tend to be strategic thinkers. There's a fitness level. There's a lot of what we call high-intensity interval training, uh, which you know is actually good for cardiovascular benefit. So there's improved lipids. There's It's hard to play lifelong if you're obese. So there actually, it may be that all of the things that improve someone's mortality make them a good tennis player. It might not be the reverse, Hmm. but I'm not taking that chance. I'm just going to play. (laughs) (laughs) And after the Australian Open, you're off to Adelaide. I am. And uh, I'm taking a little bit of risk uh, because I'm doing it between the men's and women's finals. So so on Sunday morning, I will, after the women's final, take off for Adelaide uh, for the doctors for nutrition. Uh, symposium. And uh, this has been really great that the DFN, as, it, as they call themselves, has, has been putting on symposia. So I did a couple in Melbourne, one in Brisbane, one in Sydney. And it's good that they have been really trying to get the message out there about health and nutrition. And what's your your talk? You're doing a keynote there, right? What's your your talk? What's the title of it? And what are you sort of addressing so, well, I'm actually always, um, I go with the t- whatever title they want me to, but I always talk about the same thing. You eat stuff and it makes you die. And so, you know, the whole idea of, I, I, I know I run a training program at Rush University or run a cardiology division and my training trainees, they always, I try to get them to mispronounce coronary heart disease and call it culinary heart disease. You know, so whatever they ask me to talk about, that'll be on the slide. You know, that you know, cardiovascular mortality and nutrition is really the topic. And so this will be, uh, it'll be an interesting opportunity to talk with people and answer their questions. Mm-hmm. And we do have a lot more data as the years have gone on of how different aspects of nutrition relate to heart disease and its risk factors. And so I'll be elucidating all of that. Very important topic. I know speaking firsthand when I was I think 15 years old, my dad had a heart attack and he was probably, gosh, he must have been 41 or 42. That's pretty young. And I I just remember hearing from, well, I think it was a cardiologist then that my brother and I were sort of advised, you know, you'll be at high risk of this when you're you're older because my dad's dad, my grandfather had also had a heart attack. But, you know, some years later, more than a decade later, I started to go through the science and, and read about life, one's lifestyle and the fact that a lot of cardiovascular disease and other chronic diseases are run in families because, not necessarily because of genetics, but because they adopt the same lifestyles. That's exactly right. And that's empowering. You know, When, when I first heard that it was down to genetics, I was a little bit disempowered and, and felt somewhat limited. It was nice to know that you do have so much control beyond your genetics. 
It's such an important concept for people to understand that, yes, there's, there's uh, nature and there's nurture. The environment really does play a, a, a role. And what we eat, how much exercise we're getting, how much air pollution, believe it or not, particulate matter is actually associated in the air is actually associated with cardiovascular disease. There's so many factors that you actually can control that it, it's really does overwhelm for the majority of people. Now, there really are people with mutations of genes that make it very difficult for them to get around developing heart disease. But even in those circumstances, you can delay it, you can treat it, you can recognize uh, how important it is to make sure that this is not overwhelming and, and causing sudden cardiac death at a young age, That's which is really what we'd like to avoid. Now, many of the, the listeners will recognize you from various documentaries and and are probably well aware that you were the president of the ACC, the American College of Cardiology in 2015 and 16, right. or 2015 to 2016. Mm-hmm. I sort of want to work our way up to being elected into that position. Where did your passion as a young man for improving human health, where did that inspiration come from? And what was your journey sort of, you know, as a kid up to, to medical school like? Oh, that's a long story. Actually, <laughs> it's not that long a story. I just uh, had multiple respiratory illnesses as a kid, mostly because I had a mother who smoked. And it turns out that one of those uh, pneumonias, I was admitted to a south side of Chicago inner city hospital. And the care was actually just very difficult. And as an 11-year-old, I could see that if I'm supposed to get penicillin, 500 milligrams every eight hours, and it's not coming, I'm not going to get better. So I would start going to the nurse's station and trying to collect the medicines if they weren't giving them. And then I noticed that my roommate wasn't getting his medicine. So I said, well, you know, you give me those and I'll make sure that he gets them. And they, they sort of put up with me, you know, driving the management. And I... Really, at the end of that hospitalization, I said, I'm going to become a doctor and I'm going to fix this hospital. That was not quite what happened. Um, I did go to uh, school on the south side of Chicago uh, at University of Chicago for college and medical school. And in the middle of medical school, as I was going to be a south side of Chicago private practice pediatrician, uh, I kind of realized that I had a penchant. And this is the what I really try to, when I'm mentoring young folks, I try to get them to say, do what you love. And you've heard that over and over again. But, you know, if you really are working on something that you enjoy, then you're not really working. Mm. And you can work harder because you're not really working. And so for me, that was cardiology. And then it just so happened that, you know, what I happened to be really good at and enjoyed happened to be the number one killer of Americans. And so what better application of, of my skill set and, and what I enjoyed than going into an area where I could actually try to improve things. So now, part of it I can't leave out is I talked about being in the inner city of Chicago is the African-American health, the gap in African-American cardiovascular mortality, which is about 21% higher than other ethnicities in the United States. About 50% of all African-American adults have some form of cardiovascular disease. And that is a really an epidemic that has to be stopped. And so part of that was the motivation, become, you know, sort of the inner city cardiology person. And I was able to do that in an academic center pretty well until they had administrative issues. And I ended up taking a job in, in Detroit to deal with the inner city, where it was actually a, a lot more Im- impoverished people than even I was dealing with on the south side of Chicago. Um, but, you know, for family reasons, I ended up coming back to Chicago and been at Rush University. And I just have to say that, you know, from all the places that I've been, uh, 
Rush University has a passion for the community. It is a private institution. No one tells it that it has, as an institution, that they have to go and do things to help other people. So the west side of Chicago is very difficult in terms of uh, the poverty. If you go from the shoreline on um, sort of the, the uh, downtown area and you move out west and just go about 16 Elk Station stops, you will find, uh, or I guess that would be tram stops, you will find about a 30% or 30-year decrease in life expectancy. Gosh. And so Rush, not just cardiology, uh, my division, but all of Rush University spends a lot of time trying to help the community going into the west side of Chicago and going into churches and going into community groups and trying to improve uh, health and health literacy and and, uh, understanding of the kind of things that can make people better. And so, you know, it's really been a pleasure for the last six years to be in an institution where I feel supported so I can go out and, you know, go all over and really try to set up programs to get people to recognize their heart disease risks specifically and then intervene. And we've been doing that recently and it's uh, been actually pretty exciting. So that's being sort of well-received. You're you're seeing people interested in in changing their lifestyle, but also I'm, I'm imagining that a large part of that is, is not just educating the people, but also making sure they have access to the right foods and access to the, the right healthcare, right? Absolutely. And so access to care has improved. I know there are a lot of folks, particularly in the last four years, who don't believe that Obamacare was effective, but it really was. There are, uh, you know, uh, 21 million or so people who got healthcare that access that they didn't have before. And, you know, the funny part about, we talk about this as if it was some kind of, you know, great benefit to the people, but it was a, a benefit to the society. About almost 30 years ago, there was a law passed in the United States, and I'm sure there's similar laws in other places, EMTALA, they call it E-M-T-A-L-A, Emergency Medical Labor and Treatment Act. That says that if you're an accredited hospital and someone comes to you in labor or somebody comes to you with a, a medical emergency, you cannot turn them away. So imagine you know, being an inner city, particularly African-American not having access to care, no primary care, and then you get some illness, catastrophic, mild, doesn't matter. What can you do? You can go to the emergency room. And then who pays for that? Well, you don't have the money to pay for it yourself. And unlike some of the places in the United States where they've been going after poor people for, uh, for and bankrupting them for medical costs, a lot of that doesn't happen in Chicago. And so what ended up happening is the institution would call it charity care, And how do you deal with charity care? You have to raise your prices. So it became sort of an inverted tax on everyone. The flow on effect. Exactly. And so so having uh, access to care could prevent some of those illnesses because they could go to a a primary care physician and say, I'm having these symptoms instead of waiting a couple of months Mm -hmm. uh, when something really serious is going on. So how has has that policy, I guess, changed with the the Trump government or is it? Is it unchanged? It's really being unraveled. And I think there, you know, no one, including, you know, President Obama, and uh, he was at a meeting and we were very much listening to, I think, 600 of us in the crowd listening to him sort of after the fact, how he views things. And, you know, he, he wasn't thinking that it was perfect. And there are things that could have been done better, the rollout, the, the coverage. There's still a lot of people who weren't covered. 
But undoing it without replacing it with something might be very difficult for many people. And it will ultimately increase the healthcare costs in the United States. What I'm not sure that everybody appreciates is how much of the gross domestic product of the United States is spent on healthcare. It's a massive amount that's growing and it's not sustainable. And yet we have some of the worst outcomes of around the planet, spend much more than any other country and have worse outcomes. And that's where prevention has to come in. And I know I'm weaving it back toward uh, nutrition and lifestyle, but we bear the responsibility individually to actually say, I'm not going to eat the things that are going to make me sick so that someone else has to pay for it or that I'm going to bankrupt my family trying to pay for this health care that I wouldn't need if I would just pay attention to a few really what we call life simple seven, which was put out by the American Heart Association a few years ago. And it's just this simple basics, knowing what your cholesterol, knowing what your blood sugar is, knowing what your, your blood pressure is, not smoking ever. Making sure that you're exercising adequately, doing good nutrition, hopefully that really is plant-based nutrition. If you're doing those things, you're actually going to improve your outcome and delay illness onset and lower the, the cost of healthcare. I try to tell people when I'm lecturing in the United States that this is your patriotic duty. You know, Medicare is scheduled to be bankrupt in 2026. Now, I just found out a few months ago, what does that really mean? You just like stop paying bills? What do you, they are intending a 30% cut in payment to physicians and hospitals. That means that the, the ones whose finances are questionable, they're going to stop seeing Medicare patients or they're going to close. And so is that what we want? We want the, the whole system to crumble because we can't take care of ourselves? So I tell everybody it's their patriotic duty. When, when you say Medicare patients, mm-hmm. let's just describe that unpack that, I guess, particularly for the Australian listeners, because I think the the insurance model in the United States is a little bit different to here. Quite um, right. You know, Medicare here is covers everyone Correct. in the country and gives them, a, you know, some some level of access. Mm-hmm. In, in the in the States, what's the difference there? So big difference, and, and that is that Medicare is a, um, they call it an entitlement. It started in 1965, and the whole idea is that once you reach a retirement age, 65 and older, you can uh, be, be signed up for Medicare coverage as an older person. But it's not just the elderly or the older people. It's actually anyone who's disabled. So if you had a disabling stroke at age 20, if you have um, particularly renal failure, which is a big problem in our African-American community, so much hypertension and kidney disease. If you're on dialysis, uh, you automatically qualify for Medicare. So this is covering a massive amount of people. And uh, to have this go belly up, means that people are just basically not going to get health care and they're not going to survive. And the difference between that and the sort of Obamacare that you're talking about, mm-hmm. that Obamacare was more people that, that don't have a disability already and don't have private insurance, so it would cover them. Is that Correct. Right? And yeah. you had to apply for it and it became a, a law which has recently been struck down that you had to have it. I mean, so we have laws. uh, We don't have laws that you have to have house insurance. If you have a mortgage, you have to have house insurance. (laughs) But homeowner's insurance is an option, okay? To drive a car, that's not an option. It's illegal to drive the United States without car insurance, automobile insurance. And similar to that, Obamacare made it illegal to not have uh, medical insurance and gave a mechanism 
a low cost and relatively, you know, high deductible, admittedly, so that, you know, but people had some coverage. And so unraveling this uh, might uh, leave a lot of a lot of folks uncovered. Now, you mentioned the importance of nutrition, and, and I guess we're talking about government policies here. We might circle back to that mm-hmm. in a little bit when we talk about dietary guidelines and perhaps maybe why they do not, you know, purely, I guess, reflect the science and what we're going to discuss today. You were elected as president of the American College of Cardiology in 2015. What was that election process like? How, how were you elected and, and how was that received as a, as a vegan? So it's interesting that I'm not sure folks were focusing on the fact uh, within the college, they just knew that I ate plants. That's, that had been, I'd been uh, on the board of trustees starting, I think, 2006. And so everybody knew, you know, my lifestyle that I exercised a lot and ate plants. That's, and it really had little or nothing to do with uh, my election. Everyone serves in some capacity to get recognized by the college in terms of what it is that they do to make the college better, to make healthcare better. My own contribution was in the area of imaging and appropriate use. That is, you know, don't see this in Australia, so I have to explain that a little bit, but Mm. because I do work with a lot of imagers here in Australia, particularly in nuclear cardiology, which was my given field. There were people who were actually ordering nuclear tests Uh, nuclear stress test, you know, run you on a treadmill and see how your heart's doing when it wasn't really necessary. And that sort of doing stress testing uh, to increase money in their own pocket, so-called inappropriate, financially motivated self-referral. That was something that we had to work on. And so it was one of a myriad of issues that were what we call advocacy issues, making sure that the poor people had access to, to children's health insurance. There's just a myriad that the American Medical Association would be working on. And I was one of the delegates for the American College of Cardiology. And so between imaging and overall healthcare policy, I became sort of known as someone who wants to try to get Medicare and everyone else right. I did work for Medicare for four years uh, as an advisor on uh, their payment policies. And, you know, this is a group of people who are really got a huge task. It's very difficult for them to manage this money and get everything right. And so I I left that position with a lot of respect. Meanwhile, back at the college, you know, candidates are put forward for president, they're nominated, and a nomination committee will look at pretty much what they've done and what their skill set is. And so one year I was elected after I was being, uh, was nominated and it's probably based on the service. And I, there had been a, several committees and imaging and the like that, uh, that I had chaired. And one probably key was uh, the coalition of cardiovascular organizations where everyone who had a cardiac society would be at the same table. And we try to get everyone to work on the same page and make things better for our patients. So I would say that advocacy is a thing that got me in there. No. Once I got in there, then, or I think when I was vice president, which was meant that I was going to be president in two years, someone in the college, in the media department, was asking why I was always eating plants and no animal products. And I told them, well, I had a high cholesterol in 2003, and uh, I started eating plants and my cholesterol drop was cut in half. And well, along with it, my risk was, and so I keep doing it. And she asked if I could write it into a little bit of a blog for the American College of Cardiology. 
which I did and, you know, gave the health reasons. We didn't have the massive amount of data that we have now back then, but we had a fair amount of it. And so I um, wrote that up and it got picked up by a very large, widely distributed medical information news service called MedPage Today. And for went from MedPage Today to the New York Times, the interview, and then all over. And next thing you know, I'm the world's vegan cardiologist. But I had all I, I was just doing what I normally do, which is to eat plants for my cholesterol. Has it ever been difficult? I guess, you know, sometimes people think that the vegan message is attached to some sort of propaganda or other right. agenda, right? Mm-hmm. Has it ever been a, difficult for you to separate yourself from that and clarify that your position is purely based or initially at least was based on the evidence around human health? I really appreciate that question. It, it has been difficult, but the difficult for me isn't so much, you know, animal rights versus environment. It's getting the message to cardiologists. That's the thing that I feel like I, I really am drawn to do and that I need to do. I, I've had the unfortunate experience of having multiple friends my age and younger who are cardiologists not recognizing that the leading cause of death of cardiologists is still heart disease and not understanding that they can take control of it and that when they fix it for themselves and their families, they're also going to fix their patients. And so getting cardiology in general to understand the principles of nutrition, because we're not taught about nutrition in school, and there are very few research projects that have captured the imagination of the guideline committees have been really in the middle of the guidelines. And part of the problem there is that we have some very large studies that are observational, meaning we're going to sign you up 30 years ago and we're going to follow you. And you tell us the food frequency questionnaires or you tell us how much you exercise and whether or not you smoke. You tell us all of the things that happen in your family and then we'll analyze all the data and say what's good and what's bad. And that has a lot of merit. But it also doesn't hold sway with the guideline committees because it's not randomized. So I could say that, for example, if you look at plant-based nutrition in the Mediterranean diet, so-called pro-vegetarian Mediterranean diet, if you look at eating more plants than animal protein in the nurses' health study and health professional follow-up, the Harvard group, if you look at the standard American versus semi-vegetarian versus PESCO, meaning fish, vegetarian, versus ovo-lacto, meaning eggs and milk, vegetarian, versus completely vegan, those five different diets in the Adventist health studies. In every one of those large observational series, the vegans do better, okay? And some of the times it's mortality, sometimes it's cholesterol, but they do better every time. Well, the problem with that, if you're, you know, when you're going into a guideline group, rule number one is drop your ego at the door and get ready to have your your whatever data you're trying to present ripped to shreds uh, if there are any weaknesses. And the, the weakness would be, well, you can't say that if you don't do it as a randomized prospect, it means, you know, take the 2,000 people here and 2,000 people there, okay? And, you know, this group gets only plants and this people eat whatever the comparator is. And then you follow them for 30 years and see what the difference is you will never actually be able to convince them. But what's the cost of doing that? And can, oh, you know, and, well, and the cost what's the viability? It's, it's not easy. And so we have some short-term, you know, Dean Ornish has done uh, prospective mm-hmm. trials. We do have uh, the Lyon trial. We have Mediterranean diet. Pretty and, yeah. And Pretty med you know, and, and the problem with them, Pretty med is accepted 
now in the United States as the number one diet that came out a couple of weeks ago. But the problem is that it really hasn't lowered mortality. And that's not recognized. People don't realize that when they see that graph where it was heart attack, stroke, and death put together, yes, there was a 30% decrease, but it wasn't heart attack and it wasn't death. It was mostly stroke. So we need more of the predicate type trials, but we need to make them plant-based and have whatever the comparator be. Nowadays, it would probably be keto, but um, you, you would do that comparator and do them well and do them long-term. And yeah, it would be very expensive to do the training that it takes, uh, sending people food, which um, we can talk about that for a little bit. I did that for five weeks on the South Side of Chicago for a group of people in a church. It's not easy to do those kinds of uh, prospective interventions. And it, of course, it, it also depends, I guess, on their baseline, like how, how mm-hmm. early on in their life are they randomized? No, absolutely right. And so you know, we have uh, probably the best synopsis of this was actually done by Kate Marsh, who's in Sydney. And Dr. Marsh actually put a, uh, really analyzing all of the data that, it, and the earlier, that's one of the things that she put in that manuscript, the, the earlier you start, the better off you're going to be. Now, let me go back to why my colleagues on the guideline group discount the uh, observational series. They will tell you that vegans are different, that they behave differently. They are going to wear a seatbelt. They're going to probably not go and do knife and bottle fights on a Saturday night on the south side of Chicago. They are going to behave differently. That healthy user bias. Exactly. And that really does, it's true. I mean, there's a lot of things I don't do. They try and control, I guess, a little bit for, for some behaviors, right, in these studies. You can try. Yeah. But how, how, can, how can you do them all? I mean, it's, uh, it's so interesting that people will talk about, you know, making an adjustment, a statistical mm-hmm. adjustment for everything, but you can't do everything. You and, can only do what you know. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it, there, there's also, an, I guess, an argument there for why some of the people in these studies are vegan. Are they doing it for health reasons? And, you know, therefore, sure, there's probably a health user bias. Right. Or are they, were they more inclined and inclined not to eat animal products from an ethical perspective? And therefore, you know, how healthy is their diet? Not that you can't eat a healthy diet coming in from an ethical perspective, but there's a chance that perhaps they're not concerned so much about eating whole foods, for example. Right. No, that's, that's a good point. The other point they make is that vegans tend to be, uh, have higher IQs. Uh, higher IQ tends to actually translate to more health literacy. So they're going to probably do more prevention of all, a variety of illnesses, not just heart disease. It, it, the higher IQ, higher education level with uh, people who are plant-based, that also goes along with having more access to healthcare and more, more better finances. And so I understand. So essentially what they're saying is it's, it's, it's from those studies, it's impossible for us to say that the, the reduction in disease and, and, and premature death is due to diet alone. Correct. Correct. That's, but I mean, obviously, sort of like the tennis thing. I mean, you could explain that away, but I'm still going to play. <laughs> okay. And I would still do the plant-based nutrition just because, you know, it, it really does. There's no question that prospectively, prospectively and randomized fashion, you have data for, for risk, risk factor improvement. But have we learned the lesson multiple times that what we think about risk factors relating to events may or may not be true? And so, you know, there's so many, and, you know, HDL cholesterol would be the good and high density LDL cholesterol would be a great one, a great example where multiple medication interventions 
you know, just to name a few, torcetrapib, uh, anisetrapib, niacin, you know, phenofibrate, all of these drugs would raise HDL and didn't improve mortality and in some cases actually increase mortality. So what we understand about improving risk factors doesn't always translate. To- Whereas for years, I mean, HDL and high HDL has been labeled as the good the good cholesterol and, and almost being used to promote the consumption of certain foods like eggs, which we were talking about before, right? Exactly. And, and the, you know, the egg issue is something that we have to get people to understand that, you know, it, that the data is very clear that it increases diabetes when you're doing more than seven eggs a week. And that if you do have diabetes and you eat eggs, it increases your death rate. It increases overall mortality particularly cardiovascular. And the interesting part is that uh, it really is related to the amount of cholesterol, which is very, very high in eggs. And so even though the data is clear, people will still argue about it. I know that um, a lot of Adventists, for example, in the United States, one of the bigger vegetarian groups, they still eat eggs. And this is why I'm always saying that we need more and more data because the the data that says that eggs are bad for you are mostly uh, short-term if they're randomized, and if they're long-term, they're observational, which means that you can't, you know, mm. you, you, people will always try to pick it apart. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book, plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. I guess it's also highly variable as to what you're eating eggs instead of or what you're eating them with in terms of your overall dietary pattern, right? No, that's a a really good point. And, you know, we were having this discussion on our nutrition or American College of Cardiology Nutrition Group. I I should probably say if if I ever get credit for anything with ACC, it would be putting those people together and making sure that they felt empowered to try to educate us. And they've been doing a wonderful job. And this did come up on sort of the user group and the European side of saying that eggs are bad for Americans because of the things that we do with them. And that there might be some, some truth to that, but the only way to know that for sure is to do randomized trials. Let's go through the, the disease process, atherosclerosis, and the, the dietary factors that we know contribute to that sort of cascade of events. There, there's been you know, lots of toing and froing about sugar, fat. What is the cause? Now I've heard you speak about heme iron and, and animal protein. Perhaps we can just sort of, I guess, talk through the the major dietary factors that we know are associated with the the clogging of the arteries and that plaque buildup. Well, let's start with heme iron. Um, so this was recognized years ago as so-called oxidative stress. For those people who aren't remembering their freshman chemistry about oxidation and reduction. When you put a chemical under oxidation uh, or a biochemical under oxidative stress and it changes its characteristics, and it turns out that that oxidized LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, really goes into arteries a whole lot more, more like nine times more than the non-oxidized LDL. 
So there actually is a test you could run for your level of oxidized LDL, or you could just prevent it. And one of the best ways of preventing it is a whole food plant-based diet without any heme iron. So heme iron is one to talk about now because I imagine that it's going to go global. But right now in the United States, there's a big push toward vegan meats. And one of them actually does have heme iron. It's actually not from animals. It's a genetically modified bacteria that makes a fungus secrete heme iron. What is the, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Because it tastes bloody. And so they are actually advertising taste tests um, with the American audience and they are able to show that it tastes like meat, even though it's completely plant-based with a little GMO. And so uh, I am concerned about it now. The good news about that, you know, vegan bloody meat is that there is no cholesterol, which would be the second concern. It does not have the high level of uh, that cascade of choline, phosphatidylcholine, betaine, and creatine that make your body microbiome in the GI tract make trimethylamine, which then your liver converts to make trimethylamine oxide. And, you know, if we're talking about risk factors and biochemical approaches to prevention, we probably have to start with trimethylamine and oxide, TMAO for short, put out by the Cleveland Clinic. And uh, we can now do blood levels of it. And the TMAO is really uh, something that you can change by intervention. And we've done this at Rush University uh, with the uh, with the church group that I mentioned. We had a 43% drop just by making them vegan for five weeks. And so turned them from a high-risk TMAO level into a low, low intermediate risk. And this is something that everyone could do. And why does it happen? Well, you're not giving the substrate, that is the choline, phosphatidylcholine, et cetera. And you're changing the bacteria. That is, vegetarians and vegans have completely different bacteria than people who are eating animal products full-time. And in fact, the Cleveland Clinic has shown that you could take a vegan and feed them a steak. I don't know why they would want to eat it, but if you did that and measure their TMAO level, it does not go up. In the name of science. Exactly. That, that person with their hand up. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you could do, you know, obviously if you generalize the diet, those bad bacteria would come back. People wonder, well, how did the bacteria get in there? Well, you have to understand that when you're, you know, you're, you're slaughtering an animal, this is not in sterile conditions the flesh is decaying and then you're eating it, you are eating bacteria and that it shifts the, the species of the bacteria in a way that generates more TMAO. So it turns out that we don't have an enzyme blocker right now. Um, you probably could do some probiotics or antibiotics for that matter to try to change the gut biome, no, the microbiome, mm-hmm. excuse me, the microbiome. But why do all that? Why not just change to a plant-based diet and avoid the TMAO? Okay, so that's LDL cholesterol we talked about and heme iron. So he- heme iron, though, heme iron mm-hmm. is, is associated with this, this cascade of plaque buildup through oxidation of LDL. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. What about sugar and fat? We should talk about them separately just for a moment. Just because, uh, let's talk about this the fat, particularly trans fats, which are now illegal in Denmark, Sweden, and the United States and Switzerland. And I think the rest of the world needs to join those four countries in saying that we will not allow the serving of hydrogenated oils that become trans fats to our people in restaurants and and not going to sell it in stores. That would be really good for the the world. 
Uh, glad the United States joined the other three countries. It's relatively recent. Um, there were you know, nice publications about the state of New York where some counties did this ban and other counties didn't. You could see the stroke heart attack rates uh, differ. And so finally it was adopted uh, completely. So I think everyone understands trans fat. Then you can, when you get to saturated fat, you get a little bit more um, controversy because there are people who are saying that saturated fat is really not bad for you and that it's, you know, it's going to you know, raise your good cholesterol and your bad cholesterol and it'll be okay. And that the data is all observational. It's not really strong, good evidence that you should avoid saturated fat. And so that led to the American Heart Association putting out a, a, a fat, um, a saturated fat uh, advisory. And they went through all of the literature and it's very clear that the only people who are really pushing for saturated fat consumption are the ones really who have some commercial tie to it. You know, they tend to be in that sort of low carb camp, particularly ketogenic camp. Correct. And it is a problem to wake up and see Time magazine, you know, with its big distribution with the sliver of butter and say butter is back. Mm. Just when, you know, because we really are trying to decrease obesity, we're trying to decrease heart disease. Uh, From my sort of recollection of that, that that New York, uh, sorry, the Times Magazine, mm-hmm. that was that was following a, a meta-analysis, right? And the commentary around that was that this sort of replacement factor of saturated fat hadn't been clearly elucidated in the research and that if people were were replacing saturated fat with refined sugars, then yeah, sure, they might not get benefit. But if they replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat or monounsaturated fat or or whole unrefined carbohydrates, they did get benefit. That's exactly right. And that's been shown multiple times. This is the pure trials, uh, which are you know really not the United States, about 19 or 21 countries, depending on which publication you're talking about, really did grab hold of the idea that saturated fat is not as bad as refined carbohydrates. And that isn't the message that went out. Uh, the message was really more about, you know, fat isn't so bad for you, meat isn't so bad for you, uh, but carbohydrates are bad. Well, if you look in the methods, they were talking specifically about refined carbohydrates. So sugar, white rice, white flour, that sort of thing. So there's two areas left to talk about in there. One is the the uh, substitution of saturated fat by polyunsaturated fat, monounsaturated fat. I know that that's a big controversy within the vegan community because most of those oils are plant-based and there are people who say that you should be taking, you know, a little bit and adding it to your meals and other people saying absolutely never. And, you know, there's the the aphorism, which I think is probably true, uh, speaking in terms of calories and obesity in the United States, the fat you eat is the fat you wear and it doesn't matter what kind that, that that, that is true. No question about that. But whether or not people need to uh, avoid all fats at all times that's something that I really feel strongly. We need the randomized trials because right now we have a lot of people going back and forth. And, you know, some, some, unfortunately, sometimes they've gotten personal. I've seen, yeah, it's yeah. been a bit of a blow up on Twitter, hasn't it? I really, yeah. And it, that's unfortunate because uh, it leaves egg on our face and mm. nobody has eggs in their diet. And it kind of takes the attention away from the 99% of what people agree on. That's, I, I'm trying to, I, that's exactly right hit the nail on the head. What I try to get the people in the plant-based community to uh, understand is that, you know, we have bigger fish to fry. 
without the fish and without the frying. But we really have a bigger goal than just the individual differences. And, you know, I, what, that's point number one. Point number two is that the reason that they rose to the level of an argument is because they're all successful and they believe in what they do and they've seen the success of what they do and they're all different. So what do they have this, that's the same? No animals. Hmm. Okay. So, so there may be variations of the same theme. Exactly. And, you know, the, the most important principle with whether you're looking at cholesterol, TMAO, saturated fat, heme iron, is get rid of the animal products. And if you do that, then you can talk about, oh, nuts or no nuts, alpha linoleic acid or nut. And, and you can have uh, some really good arguments that would be they're going to generate more heat than light. Why don't we just do randomized trials? But, mm. you know, obviously we need the randomized trials on versus the animal world first. And then let's go back and take our kids. It would be nice to see a, a sort of uh, a low-fat vegan or, on, you know, pretty much vegan diet like the Dean Ornish diet or, or Dr. Esselstyn's diet mm-hmm. against a, a Mediterranean, you know, very plant-focused diet with, with a bit higher total fats, but mainly from unsaturated. It would right. be very interesting to see. And I think we'll get there. I, I, I've encouraged uh, all the participants of all the Twitter war to, to do things. And, and this is really that's not me talking or Rush University exactly. It's really the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention, which I'm the editor-in-chief of. Right now, I have opinion pieces uh, and editorials going on both sides. And they're all, you know, they quote the literature. They're well-written. We publish them as long as they're reviewed and approved. But... What we really would like is comparative trials so we can stop having the opinion wars and replace it with facts. Let's just continue on this theme of Mm -hmm. fat, right? So saturated fat, I think it's less than 10% of calories is recommended in the American Dietary Guidelines. Is that right? So I would say that that the, the, the latest dietary guidelines were the ones that I was on the committee for. With the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association. There is another guidance that's coming out, really should be out in 2020 uh, from the United States government, but that's not going to be cardio, cardiology focused like we are. So what we were re- really promoting in our guidelines is elimination re- you know, uh, of as much as possible of, without putting a number on mm. it, because I don't know that there is a, mm. a particularly safe level if, because the data is very clear that you know every... 3% of your saturated fat that you reduce or that you eliminate with polyunsaturated fat, you end up with a significant, oh, I'm sorry, it was 11% reduction gives you a, a replacement, gives you a 27% reduction in mortality. Now, obviously those are modeled and they may not be prospective and, and, and exactly accurate, but the idea that less is more Means that I'm not sure that we need to put a number on it. A number on but the, it. And the and the top sources, I guess, of saturated fat are dairy and red meat in the yeah. in the typical Western diet. Correct. And and there you have to leave some room for palm oil, coconut oil. I know there are people in the plant based world who say that they're okay. Be a because they're plants. B because they they are saturated fats, but they are shorter chains. And they don't produce as much increase in LDL cholesterol. But are they as safe as monounsaturated fat? Probably not. Mm. But I mean, I saw, I saw a meta-analysis, I think, just the last couple of weeks on coconut oil, which was associating it with cardiovascular disease. Exactly. And so, and I think it's going to be a little less than mm. lard or tallow, beef tallow, but it's still not going to be safe. Talk me through the timeline that I think it was the 1980 
dietary guidelines that first came in and with a, a advice around limiting total fat in the United States. And I think from my reading that was brought in to try and curb cardiovascular disease. But proponents for, for fat will say those guidelines came in and we advised everyone to move to a, a low-fat diet. Yeah. But disease rates haven't gone down. They're going, they're going up. It's carbohydrates that are to blame. Talk me through how you would explain that and then maybe we move into carbohydrates and refined sugars. I really would point everyone towards the increase in mortality with carbohydrates that was pointed out by the PURE trials. They've repeatedly shown that if you're eating carbohydrates mainly as your source of calories, it increases your mortality. But in the fine print, as I mentioned, this is refined carbohydrates. This isn't, you know, a a natural fruit, vegetable type of carbohydrate that is, uh, you know, full of fiber to modulate the insulin levels. So if, if I could get everyone to remember just one thing is that for the cardiovascular system, insulin is the enemy. I know it saves lives if you're diabetic, type 1 diabetic, but the insulin overload that happens with type 2 diabetes, uh, where your pancreas is putting out massive amounts of insulin in response to the what you're ingesting and the fact that you are insulin resistant because of the obesity, that it's actually the cent- central core of the problem, no pun intended, but it's central obesity. And if people do are not working on their core, they end up with this insulin resistance issue, which generates more plaque in the arteries. So what's the mechanism there? How does the, the actual increase in insulin affect the, the plaque? So, so a couple of issues. One is once you're insulin resistant, your blood sugar is higher. And so your you know, hemoglobin A1C, as they call it, is just a measure of how much sugar is attached to your red blood cells. Well, guess what? Sugar gets attached to LDL cholesterol. So glycated or sugar-coated LDL is very atherogenic. And so you end up with the same amount of LDL cholesterol, but it's producing more plaque. Insulin itself is a growth hormone. It increases the, the activity of macrophages and as well as taking nutrients and, and putting them inside cells where, where they should be. But they take you know, fatty acids out of the blood and put it in fat cells so people grow. And every diabetic who ends up saying, well, I, you know, my doctor said my wasn't controlled, so they put me on insulin. They see a weight gain, of course. Um, and what the other part that people aren't aware of is that insulin is an amazing hormone at changing how your gut deals with food. That is, you eat a certain amount of food and some of it's going to go in the toilet and some of it's going to be absorbed, right? Well, what is that ratio and what changes it? Insulin does. And so people wonder, and this was interesting that there was a lawsuit, I think about three weeks ago in favor of the plaintiff about diet soda saying that you can't call it diet soda, you know, that she was damaged by this never lost weight. Weight was going up as she was drinking a uh, artificially artificial sweetener. Well, why does that happen? Because there are really only a couple of artificial so-called sweeteners that don't raise insulin levels. Uh, that would be Yacon syrup and erythritol. Erythritol does a tiny amount. Erythr- uh, Yacon syrup does none. The rest will have an insulin level. So when your insulin level goes up in response to one of those artificial sweeteners, you absorb more calories from your GI tract. This doesn't help you. Interestingly enough, the courts agreed with her. 
So we are in, uh, we do have a substantial amount of difficulty getting people away from refined mm-hmm. carbon carbohydrates. They're everywhere. And unfortunately in the United States, uh, and, and I could see it here as well. A lot of those things are actually fried um, uh, and refined sugar together. And you know, that's a really a, a, a difficult com- combination for the uh, arterial system to handle. People listening, and you, you sort of touched on it then, I guess, with, with fiber. But they may, may be thinking, well, you know, what about fruit? Fruit's, mm-hmm. fruit's high in sugar. So perhaps just talk to why the sugar and fruit and consuming fruit is a healthy choice compared to the sort of you know high fructose corn syrup right so if you're taking fruit sugar the amount of the insulin is substantial but it's just a, a you know 10 20% less than table sugar glucose or or sucrose okay but the other side of this is that when you're eating a regular fruit not a juice when you do it, juicing is doing exactly the wrong thing. When you're eating the regular fruit, you're actually modulating how much sugar you're getting by the fiber. And so you know, I don't think anyone other, outside of the nuclear medicine world likes my analogy here. But just imagine you've got a nuclear reactor. What stops all of that uranium and plutonium from going nuclear, as they say, is cadmium control rods that absorb and slow down the reaction. That's exactly what happens when you're eating fiber with the sugar. And so, yes, fruit very clearly has a lot of sugar. And if it has a lot of fiber, then you're fine. And so there's a nice little graph that you can see for each little species of fruit that compares the fruit to the sugar to the fruit fiber. And the worst in the world, unfortunately, is grapes. And so after I saw that, I put grapes in my cereal or I put grapes, you know, with nuts or something that's going to have fiber. And on the other side, the blackberries and the raspberries that were all kind of gritty, all of a sudden I like them more <laughs> because they have a much higher fiber ratio compared to the sugar. So so I would say if people are are paying attention to the sugar fiber ratio, they they will do okay with fruit. Okay, so I think we've we've sort of ticked off sugar saturated fat, heme iron, TMAO, anything else there that we need to, to touch on in terms of the dietary risk factors, I guess? So I, there are a couple other things. I mean, people talk about NEU5, but that's really more for cancer. The one that I probably should mention is the IgE response that people get after tick bites. I don't think you've seen it in Australia yet, but it, it might be coming here soon. That was an important one um, put out by the University of Virginia, that if you have that bite and you have the genetic capability, when you eat animal products, particularly beef, it actually creates an IgE, that is an immune globulin response, that actually will massively increase plaque formation. Um, So yet just another reason to stay away from eating animal products. Do you think a, a lot of the, I guess, confusion and, and sort of argument around, you know, what's the cause, let's try and narrow it in as to a single nutrient and blame one thing, that sort of reductionist view. Do you think a lot of the confusion stems from the fact that these are umbrella terms, you know, fat, there's a myriad of different types of fat, there's a myriad of, there's different types of carbohydrates. I mean, while it's obviously incredibly important to sort of zoom in and look at mechanisms and nutrients often kind of forget to zoom back out and just look at the overall dietary pattern. 
it's it's a full time job. If you're eating processed food, and which you know some of them are going to be okay, some of them are not going to be okay. You've got to be a label reader, and you've got to look and see is there if there says cholesterol zero, the odds are there are no animal products in it. Okay, uh, if the sodium is substantial and you have a tendency toward hypertension, you got to be careful about that. And so it really is almost a full-time job unless you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, then you don't have package labels <laughs> and you're not worried about it because all of, everything in that diet is actually quite healthy for you unless you're overdoing it with the, with the grapes. Now, there, there's a group of people, I guess, out there that are speculating, they've got their theory that high LDL is not an issue as long as triglycerides are low and HDL is high. We've spoken about HDL um, and I've seen the term lean mass hyperresponders, I think they call it. They seem to to think that LDL itself is not a, an independent risk factor for for heart disease. So my, my or, or cardiovascular disease, my question is, is LDL itself a predictor of cardiovascular disease or do you require... Uh, inflammation and insulin resistance in order for that high LDL to cause an issue? So I think people who were saying that might have to review the literature again and look at the more more recent trials. What I would point them out is my good buddy at Harvard, Paul Ritker. He's became famous for developing the assay for high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is a measure of inflammation, as you know. Well, and he really was proposing that LDL is important, but so is inflammation. And I think people do understand that. And, you know, it's very simple. While we're on this message, I'll throw in a couple of things. Yes, get your teeth fixed. Uh, Make sure you, so you don't end up with the gingival disease that results in more heart attacks. And yes, get the flu shot. I know that's controversial in some places, but if you just Google the words, flu shot, heart attack, you'll find a significant reduction in heart attacks if people get their flu shots. It's just another infection, another inflammation that you can avoid. Well, if you look at the JUPITER trial done by the Harvard group, well, it's multi-center trial with Paul Ritker as the lead, where he looked at rosuvastatin and high dose in people who had high C-reactive protein, what he showed is that there really is sort of a four different panels of of cardiac events. That is, uh, if you have a high amount of inflammation and a high amount of LDL, you do really badly. And if you have low and low, you do pretty good. And if you have one is high and the other one is low, you do intermediate. They're both important. And so the interesting thing about rosuvastatin and the rest of the statins is that they lower both. And that's why they've been so successful. And so anyone who says LDL reduction isn't important is missing the cholesterol trialist data that says that for every millimole, and for the American audience, that's an LDL of 39 points, for every reduction of a millimole, you will get about a 22% decrease in cardiac events. These are people's lives and brains. And so, you know, I, I remember the HOPE trial for, would be another one where they did this seemingly, you, they really do this, but they did. Taking uh, two medications, um, an angiotensin receptor blocker, that's a fancy name for a blood pressure pill, 
and a statin, which is, deals with cholesterol, and take a bunch of people who are at risk, okay, and you put, divide them into four boxes. One is placebo, placebo, so there's no drug. Another one has both drugs. Then, then the third group has the blood pressure pill only, and the fourth group has the statin only. And there were a lot of expected stuff, but the thing that was unexpected to me was that third, that group that had the statin only had a 50% reduction in stroke, even though their blood pressure did not go down. So it's hard for people to say, and how did it do it? Yeah, it may have lowered some inflammation, but it mostly lowered the LDL cholesterol. Okay, now let me loop this back to plant-based nutrition because this is where I started. Uh, the, almost the day that I went vegan because my LDL was high was when David Jenkins had the portfolio publication. It's a great paper. Absolutely, in the Journal of American Medical Association showing very clearly that if you do a whole food plant-based diet with plant sterols and almonds and... Uh, what were the, the plant sterols in that? They were, they were being... Were they being added in addition to the food? No, I think they. I think there was like black beans soup and okay. that sort of thing. Yeah. It was the sterols were from the vegetables. Yeah, so these are naturally existing compounds. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And when you did that, you ended up with a dramatic reduction in LDL cholesterol that was equal to a low dose statin, mm-hmm. well, not a high dose statin. So essentially, those sterols sterols inhibit the. The absorption of cholesterol. That's what they're supposed to do. Um, but the increased fiber from the, from the vegan diet also does that. And the, uh, the almonds have multiple mechanisms, uh, but they do end up lowering cholesterol as well. So, and, and a lot of that has to do with the monounsaturated fat and the polyunsaturated fat in the almonds. So uh, that really being able to take a statin is great but doing, doing a diet that lowers LDL cholesterol and inflammation really is fantastic mm-hmm. as well. And it's an opportunity that everybody could do without a prescription. There's, there's an interesting population that um, I was reading about that sort of is talking, I guess, vaguely to this area, the, the Chimane tribe mm-hmm. in Bolivia. Yes. Um, I think it's Bolivia. Yep, it's Bolivia. They have the lowest incidence, I think, of recorded coronary artery disease. They ha- so they have very, very low LDL, actually have high inflammation, right? From what I read, yet uh, very low LDL and are super protected, it seems, against coronary artery disease. So they're not exactly protected, but the age incidence is way better than the United okay. States. And so uh, they're not completely plant-based. Uh, it's a fairly high carbohydrate diet, but it's not a refined carbohydrate diet. And yes, they have uh, enough parasitic diseases to leave them with a fair amount of inflammation and high CRPs, and yet they do very well cardiovascularly, very little hypertension, very little diabetes, and very few heart attacks. And they end up with, as it turns out, uh, extremely low levels of coronary calcium. That that really was what our folks were able to do. Is uh, this good friends of mine, Sam Wan, Randy Thompson, and so many others. They've been going around the world doing uh, CT scanning on mummies to look at calcium in arteries um, and sort of backtrack on cardiovascular disease and in particular ancient societies. But they actually did the live people in the Samanis. Now, they're not completely plant-based. If they catch an animal, they would, you know, eat the animal. But um, they, it's probably very different uh, fat, very fat profile in the, in the animals than, um, I guess, the, the typical meat that would be consumed in a Western population. Exactly. Right. The, the LDL, uh, in terms of, I guess, looking at ancestral or other mammals, I read an interesting 
paper. It was O'Keefe and Lauren Cordain, and they were talking about, and they're actually from the, the paleo yes. um, sort of sort of background. But they were talking um, and advocating for an LDL between fifty to seventy, which was the standard LDL for hunter gatherers, but also for for free living primates and other wild mammals who do not develop atherosclerosis. Interesting. Um, whenever people talk about paleo, and I know Jim O'Keefe, he's a very data-driven guy. He's on our nutrition group. And it, it turns out that if you look at the paleo data, people were living, if they were doing really well, 45 years maybe. And so when you're talking about a way of eating for sustenance and survival, that's one thing. But if you're talking about longevity and sustainability, that's really not what we're talking about. So we have had our sort of arguments, and I have to say that within the college, within the ACC, these huge differences that we have in nutrition, they're all done in such a wonderfully dynamic and thoughtful and um, impersonal way. Um, so uh, Dr. O'Keefe wouldn't mind me saying, mm. you know, we've have uh, these debates, you know, we have our differences of opinion, but we would be on the side of plant-based nutrition for longevity, mm-hmm. such as, you know, as you saw in Adventist Health Study. And who wants to give up a decade of life yeah. just to eat animal? I don't think so. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you'll find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. Do they think that, I guess, some of the the context of the, the or the paleo diet has, you know, somewhat been taken out of context in terms of how the average Westerner probably does the paleo diet versus, you know, from what I've read on on their sort of ancestral diets, they tended to be much higher in fiber and much higher in plant foods than perhaps people would even recognize. Well, I, you know, I, I think I still struggle with it, taking uh, that part seriously, because I'm not sure that the data is really clear on what people were eating. And every time I see something in the literature in the last two years, it always says, wait a minute, they were eating, as, as you were saying, much more plants. And, you know, this idea that you're eating, you know, grass-fed beef and stuff like that, that was not happening very often. Yeah. From from what I've read, and as you say, it's, it's not that clear. You know, it's, it's easier to see the remains of animal foods than it is of plant foods when you're going back and going through sites. And right. trying to inspect what people were eating, so I guess there's there is a, a necessity there to sort of approach with a bit, little bit of skepticism. Indeed, all of this this information that we're talking about, the these dietary risk factors, the benefits of a of a whole food plant based diet for reducing those risk factors. How do you, how do you feel that is reflected in the current dietary guidelines and? Are there reasons for why you believe the the guidelines perhaps are not, you know, completely reflective of the evidence that we have around preventing and reversing cardiovascular disease? Well, it's like, again, I'll make the distinction between the U.S. 
government guidelines, which, which are put out every five years by the United States, um, the USDA, Department of Agriculture, and the Health and Human Services. And they sort of alternate every five years about who they're both involved, but one of them takes the lead. So the 2015 one became a big area of controversy. They said some very progressive things and then some things that we did not agree with. The progressive things were that, you know, that Americans were eating too much protein, particularly men, and that red meat should be limited and that uh, sugar-sweetened beverages should be limited. And those were really very progressive. The one that wasn't informed well enough was saying that they, that cholesterol was not a nutrient of concern and that the previous 300 milligram limit per day um, should just be removed. That was really not evidence-based. And it was sort of shocking to A, C it, and B, say that it was our American College of Cardiology literature that was telling them to do that, which was not the case. That was not what we were. So we did have a series of meetings with them and we got that part removed. And if the, if the final document, which unfortunately most people do not understand because you never take back the bad headline, you never get it out of people's, there are people will still mm. today, five years later, say that we removed the 300 milligram. I guess it kind of helps people justify their diet and I think they're just misinformed. Nobody sees the retraction, okay? So, but the final document does say, which was an Institute of Medicine quote that uh, our group, including Neil Barnard, gave to them in a meeting. That is, people should eat as little cholesterol as possible, which of course is zero in the context of a healthy diet. And so- Which only comes from animal products. Exactly. So the, there, there's a line in those guidelines that tells people that they should be a vegetarian. Uh, there also is a big vegetarian section, but that particular line, eat as little cholesterol as possible, that's saying being a vegetarian. Well, particularly saying being a vegan because, exactly. I mean, eggs and dairy contain cholesterol. They sure do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so anyway, that process is going on right now. Um, there are uh, the, and the process to get from the draft to the final throughout the public comments was very difficult in 2015, 2016. Uh, it turns out that there was a lot of industry influence and the sugar-sweetened beverage thing got, uh, or initiative to try to decrease that really did get watered down, no pun intended. And the red meat, uh, telling people that they should reduce it, that got removed completely. And so looking forward to the next- Was that uh, uh, red meat, but what about processed meats? Were they in there? I'm not sure. I don't, that's just, so it's five years ago now. So I'm not sure I remember how much they talked about it, but I'll talk about that in a second. Okay. So we can come to the the, the recent papers in the annals. Right. Well, yeah, that's another whole nother thing that is probably not worth a whole lot of people's time. But, uh, but I am concerned that what happened is that industry influences were very heavy. And I'm hoping that the 2020 guidelines are going to be where much more evidence-based and less influenced by politics and, mm. and, uh, and industry. Have but, you, have you, is that something that you've heard? They're, they're aiming to be less affected by industry. I know that the Health Canada guidelines sort of came out and said they were less uh, accepting of, of industry influence when they brought out new guidelines, I think in 2018, that were, they removed dairy from, as a required food group and, and sort of promoted a more plant-based diet. 
Right. Well, I'm I'm glad that that happened. I don't know what's happening with the 2020 group. I'm not not part of it, but I know that it will be transparent. We will see um, exactly what the relationships with industry with were, uh, will be, which is something that when you're going back to the annual stuff, we'll talk about that in a moment. But I really want to emphasize for the cardiology issues, the primary prevention guidelines that we published in March does have an expanded nutrition section, and it talks specifically about the things that should be avoided. And that is saturated fat, cholesterol, sodium, trans fats, and processed red meat. Now, I know we've took some hits uh, from people because um, they, we were saying avoid or reduce instead of using the words eliminate and say harm, giving us what we call a level three, meaning you shouldn't do this at all, ever. And I think some of that is justified and some of it has to do with the compromise that you make when you're writing guidelines with uh, trying to develop consensus in the room and make sure that you're following as much as you can prospective randomized trials, which were not available for most of the stuff. The trans fat, we were able to get that as a level three, but the, the other four are still reduce and avoid, which is almost saying the same thing. And so if people follow that guideline, that was published in March, the American College of Cardiology and Primary Prevention Guidelines, they will clean up their diet tremendously. I'll put that into the show notes for people. Great, great. The annals papers. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe just, I guess, we can talk about research in general and, and, and how industry can affect research, positive publication bias, what's you know, being done to, to sort of address issues like that. But let's start with annals. There was these headlines basically exonerating red meat and processed meat not too long ago. I think that was November last year. How did how did that play out from your perspective and what do you sort of make of it? So this was an interesting time when you looked at a small sliver, which, you know, they were asking people to reduce uh, what would happen if you reduced meat from seven servings to three per week. Well, that's a very narrow window, and you could take existing databases and analyze them for that small amount, and they came to the conclusion that it would be a small amount of harm, and that for the most part, if you look at them individually, that small amount of harm wouldn't reach so-called statistical significance. And because it was negligible, even though it was small, then people should feel free to go ahead and eat, because one of the papers said that you know, people really like eating meat. And so that was used as a justification to make a guideline uh, and, you know, hesitate to propagate that word guideline. You know, guidelines should be reserved for people who have been vetted by multiple societies, gotten together, and they have their expertise and remove all conflicts of interest. So I can tell you that when we were writing the prevention guidelines that I just mentioned, ACC, that you're going to put the link to, no one had any relationships with industry for 12 months before we started during the entire guideline writing process. And we committed to no relationships with industry 12 months after the publication. So I haven't even met with drug reps in my office for not until March of 2021. So this is uh, a major issue that was not followed. They came up that there, there was a small amount of harm, not significant said, ignore the harm for the small change. 
that that was a small change that was not relevant to the United States, even though this was playing out in an American journal. People don't realize if they just Google it, how much meat do people eat? It's really about 15 servings of red meat. And that I'm surprised that it's that low, but apparently there's been a rise in chicken and fish consumption so that it's only 15. Well, so what is the relevance of going from seven to three if you're eating 15? There's no relevance at all. And so trying to, I'm not sure what the whole idea of it was, but people ignored pretty much what the facts were and went with the what they really wanted to say, which is that we like eating meat and we're going to keep eating meat. Now, you know, every everyone was up in arms. I'm kind of on the other side. People have to realize that what do I do for a living? I'm actually the chief of cardiology at a major university that runs a big cardiovascular operation. And that kind of, if they want to put more red meat, we're going to make more money. Okay. We're not going to be happy uh, because this is not what we're about at Rush. Okay. Is expanding the business by, you know, having people harm themselves. But, you know, my financial bias would be on the other side. Go ahead. Yeah, do it all. We have stents for you. We have bypass surgeries for you. You got to make sure that your first event isn't sudden cardiac death, which a lot of times it is. But if you can make it to the hospital, we'll take care of you. You know, we've got, you know, we can handle all of your problems. Just eat whatever you want. But that's not the way we approach medicine. And I, and I don't think that we're alone at Rush for doing this. And so, you know, adding things to people's diet that's going to harm them and then hiding the relationships with industry that were hidden, I think was a, a very negative thing. But the New York Times came out and... I feel like they'd actually covered it quite well this time. They did. Yeah, that Times article, which with the conflict of interest sort of was updated on the journal about a month later, I think, you know, the ties with the, the beef industry. But do you think that that was somewhat timed to to influence these 2020 guidelines? Um, I, well, I mean, since the investigator was, well, in Canada, but apparently headed to uh, Texas a and I'm not sure what their motivation was, if they had any relationship there. And perhaps it was. And But, you know, the, the interesting part in, uh, with most of these things is that the pushback was strong and it galvanized a lot of people to think through this. And so I hope the message got out there that they were not a guideline group. They put out guidelines anyway. They're accepted by a major journal without understanding that there was conflicts of interest. And they ended up with egg or whatever else on their face. And that, and that hopefully uh, people will learn from this and be a little more circumspect. Now, I I need to, to let you go soon so you can probably head back over to the tennis. But a couple questions to sort of wrap this one up. Can you explain the positive publication bias and how that works? Oh, gosh. So, so uh, it's intensely personal for anybody who's done any studies, you know, of, you know, well, a cardiology fellow will come and say, hey, you know, I, I need to do a research project. Do you have anything? I said, yeah, we saw some interesting things on rounds. We'd like to go into our, our records and see if there's a relationship between you know, this finding on imaging and the outcome or the disease or whatever it is. If we don't find one, we don't publish it. Say, oh, well, that was interesting, but there was nothing there. If we do find one, then we publish it. And that positive publication bias, when you look at, you know, red meat or 
drugs, that, that would be a really good one. You know, fish oil would be a really good one to talk about uh, because of a lot of early studies were showing that there was some benefit. We thought cognitive function, we thought heart attack, we thought rhythm disturbances were all going to be improved by taking fish oils. Well, a lot of that may have been positive publication bias. That is, if you do, you know, 25 study or 20 studies and one of them is positive, you know, which is statistically possible. If you say p-value of 0.05, that means one out of yeah. 20 could be misleading. That one would tend to get published and the other is, oh, well, that didn't work and just get dumped. So then we end up years later having much larger prospective randomized trials where people look very carefully. And there was just one published in the last two days, another negative fish oil trial. They have not been helpful, with the one exception, if you remove the DHA, keep the EPA only, increase the dose by about eight, so you got 4,000 instead of 500 milligrams, and you take a very high-risk population who are not taking the highest dose of statin. People, I'm not sure everybody understands that in the so-called reduce-it trial, that these people were on moderate doses of statins, not high dose, which is the standard of care for that particular group. If you have all those ifs and you have an elevation in triglycerides of more than 135 milligrams per deciliter, you will get a benefit. The benefit was substantial. But what about diet? What about using guideline-driven management with statins? That's not what was shown, and yet they got it FDA approved. So I, I think that one particular drug does have a role. Um, I would have to see, in my patients, it would be, have to be high triglycerides at the same time that the patient is on a maximum dose statin and a completely plant-based diet. And if that still happened, then I probably would use that drug. But I'm not sure that it really has a role if you're doing the lifestyle well. Okay, so that's positive publication bias. Indeed. Perfect, thank you. One, th- one question I wanted to quickly ask you on the dietary guidelines. If, if there was one or two changes that you would like to see in the 2020 guidelines that you think would be most impactful. Of course, you'd, you'd like them to, to be promoting a plant-based diet, but let's say they, they're going to make a few, a handful of changes in there. What are the ones that you think would make the biggest impact? So if I, if I had to make a big difference, I probably, you know, looking at all of the literature that's happened in the last five years, I'm not sure that I would go after red meat first. I would go after processed red meat for sure, but sh- sugar, uh, sugar-sweetened beverages, refined carbohydrates have to be lumped in with, with processed red meat and then red meat and then eggs. You put all, if you take all of those things, which people do, by the way, that's, I, yeah, I won't say a commercial product, but what I just said was actually in one of those breakfast things that you get at a fast food restaurant, every single one of them. And if you were to remove all of those, the cardiovascular health of the population would dramatically improve. And where, where, where does dairy sort of sit in that? So you have, have to recognize that dairy in the American population has been substantially negative. It increases mortality. But if you look at other countries, the, the data doesn't look quite as bad. Particularly if you look at the Journal of American Medical Association in 2016, there was a wonderful analysis of the nurses' health and health professional follow-up. 
showing that dairy, poultry, and fish all increase mortality around 11% of all-cause mortality. Not nearly as bad as red meat, which wasn't as bad as eggs, which wasn't as bad as processed red meat. Interestingly enough, uh, that uh, substitution of uh, animal protein with vegetable protein, it got published again three years later, just last year, in the same journal. It was not American. It was actually Japanese. And in the Japanese studies, there there were two distinct things. One is that the overall mortality was lower with dairy, 7% lower mortality with dairy. Cardiovascular disease was still high. So the cardiologist should not be recommending dairy. But even though cancer and heart disease was higher in the dairy group, the overall mortality was 7% less. I don't know what that means. If it's not cancer and heart disease in Japan, what does that really mean? A 7% protection? Does that mean that people who drink milk wear seatbelts? I don't know what that means, but it's not cardiology. The other thing that was unusual in the cardiology stuff is that processed meat was much worse in outcomes than it was in the United States, about a 42% increase in mortality. And red meat was the same, which I'd never seen before. Processed meat in every database is worse than red meat, Hmm. except in that Japanese publication. Sort of, I guess, guidelines aside... What else would you like to see change in the, in the American environment, particularly the obesogenic environment from a, a policy point of view to, to help reduce the amount of, of cardiovascular disease? Probably the, the most important thing is changing the availability of diet, dietary substances that are really good. There are some very simple things that we could do. You could actually red, yellow, green label foods. And some people have talked about that. And if you actually put that in the supermarket and say, this is going to be good for you, this one is not so good, but you could do it on occasion. And this red light stuff, we're selling it, but you should be rarely buying it. Okay. That may not be good for marketing, but it would be tremendous for the American population. The other one, obviously, in, you know, you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. And some very famous people who've had their heart attacks when they were perfectly fit. But having a poor exercise, poor functional status, all of that just hurts the people with, these, with a poor diet. So I would say get an early release program from the sofa, you know, and recognize that the chair is the new cigarette. And if we just get up and, and move and do fruits and vegetables... We're, all, we're going to do so much better. To wrap this one up, talk me through what a, a standard day of eating looks, for, looks like for you. What, what foods are, are on the plate? What food groups do you emphasize? Oh, I have to tell you, the, and no one likes to hear me talking about my own diet um, just because if I'm not extraordinarily careful, I lose weight. So my playing weight when I was a professional tennis player was 185 pounds and in the depths of trying to organize myself, I got down to about 155 pounds. I've gained probably, hopefully, with really focusing on it in Australia for the last five days, hopefully I've gotten back to maybe 165. I want to be 175. Well, how do I, ha- how do, I do that? So what may be yellow light for some people, which are dense grains, nuts, those sorts of things, beans, those are things that I should be eating more of. And any vegan athlete 
needs to be eating more of that. The green light stuff, which is fresh fruits and vegetables, those are always going to be there. And yeah, if I'm eating mostly those, I should be eating eight times a day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, this, those are the vegan athlete is a completely different animal. And uh, I know Novak Djokovic and the Game Changers, which I was you know, pleased to be a part of. And Djokovic talking about how, you know, how did he outlast Federer for all those many hours of finals of Wimbledon? It was this plant-based diet. He wasn't tired. And so that is, that's part of what you go through. But but if you're not eating enough of the calorie-dense items, you really can't lose more weight than you want to. I don't think my, my patients hate me talking about that <laughs> because, because they're all struggling to lose weight. And I'm saying, so, you know, make sure that you're eating more on the, the fresh fruits and vegetable size and leave just one or two servings of the dense grains. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go now and get back over to the, the tennis. We should have said we're actually sitting Got a beautiful view over Melbourne here and not not too far away from, from Rod Laver Arena. Thank you so much for your time. And as I said at the start, I'll, I'll pop a link into the Doctors for Nutrition Symposium. So anyone who is from Adelaide or, or, or can get to Adelaide on February 2nd to see Dr. Kim Williams, I'm sure you will not be disappointed. So thank you very much for joining me and, and hopefully uh, I can have you back on the show in the future. Thanks, Simon. I really appreciate it. Well, there we go, friends. I hope you got as much out of that conversation as I did. And of course, if you know anyone who you think would benefit from this information, please share this episode with them. It really could be life-changing. As I said in the episode, please refer to the show notes for the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association 2019 guidelines and other studies that we spoke about for further reading at your end. With the 2020 dietary guidelines coming out soon, I think this episode is a really important reminder that industry can affect our policies and and may in fact continue to affect our policies in the future and, and affect what we are told to eat. That's why it's super important to find people who are well-educated and without any commercial agenda to help guide you with your health decisions. And I feel the the AEC AHA 2019 guidelines, the ones that I'll put into the show notes and that we spoke about in this episode, I feel that they offer sensible advice from 18 experts who got together to create the consensus position on risk factors for cardiovascular disease, including diet and and how we can reduce our risk. And they clearly endorse a plant-based diet, not a keto diet, not a paleo diet, not a carnivore diet, or anything else that you're being sold on social media. I'm going to leave that with you. Thank you again for tuning in. Please leave a review on iTunes if you haven't already. It would be very much appreciated. I appreciate all of you and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.